You are listening to The Weekly, a production of WOBC 91.5 FM. I'm your host, Sarah Dalgleish, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Marcus. Hey, what's up? We're very pleased to be talking with Student Senate Chair and AAPR Steering Committee member Cameron Dunbar today. Cam, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Cam, just to just to start off here, I think probably everybody knows what AAPR is by now, but could you maybe just sort of give us an update in general as to where AAPR is right now in its process? Right. Well, to, to clear up some confusion, AAPR is definitely not AARP. Um, yes. But you're right. I think most folks in this community are pretty familiar at this point. Essentially, AAPR is uh, the Academic and Administrative Program Review. <coughs> It was uh, chartered essentially at the request of President Ambar to undergo a review of essentially all of Overland's operations. It's pretty unique uh, because it's the first of its kind for this institution that really looks at specifically both the conservatory and the college collaboratively. <coughs> and so over the fall and the and winter term, you were sort of collecting data. And, and last summer. And last summer as well, and analyzing that data, is that, is that right? Right, right. We were uh, essentially looking at a lot of data points, just trying to get a good grasp on, on understanding how this institution works in a myriad of ways. And I think, if, if nothing else, we learned that it's a, a really intriguing complexity, but it's difficult. Yeah. So at what point is AAPR at now? Um, what are you looking at? What has been made public? Um, and... Yeah, just a quick update on that. Right. So we're definitely in a, a sort of consultation-based space now. Uh, we have sort of put forth our preliminary areas of recommendation, uh, essentially alerting the community of the things we're considering, and particularly the areas we're looking at. Uh, and now we are getting input from a variety of different groups, um, many groups consisting of faculty governance like EPPC, <coughs> An EPC uh, in the conservatory, they've been having consultations with Senate, um, the Conservatory Council of Students, uh, junior faculty. There have been, um, there's been at least one alumni Q&A webinar, and I believe they're, they're recasting that. So essentially we're just trying to really pour out the important parts of what we found over the last few months and to share those with the community to give folks a better idea of essentially where we are. Yeah. What, what would you say are your top findings from this process? So, Renee Romano always says this, and we sort of, I think we take it for granted on the committee, but uh, with the survey that we sent out to students in the fall asking them to talk about different pieces of their Oberlin experience, we found that all our academic departments were rated by students of high quality across the board, and so uh, that was really meaningful to us. Yeah. Uh, it's something we probably could have guessed. Uh, because we're we're pretty proud of what we do here. But I think that was one of the most really inspiring parts, just understanding that at the core of what we do in meeting our academic mission, we're still doing that very well. That's awesome. And as far as areas of improvement, were there any that sort of were surprising or stuck out to the group? Um, I, I think it depends on who you ask. Uh, I think for folks who have been here for a particularly long period of time, uh, some of the the findings of the group just made sense. Or another way of putting it is for people who interact specifically on the student end with like CDS and Res Ed. Mm. You know, those those were ranked in and rated pretty poorly. And I I don't think that was much of a surprise. I right. think Stevenson has been talking about the. 
um, quality of our housing conditions and the uh, the vitality of our like dining program pretty heavily, especially over the last two years. Uh, and so, I will say it's always good to have data to back up, you know, claims and specifically, you know, to really support people's day to day experiences and articulating those. So you mentioned um, that academics have been highly rated, and I think that one of the concerns of a lot of students with <coughs> AAPR and budget cuts moving forward is that um, academic departments will face cuts, uh, will face faculty loss, and um, things like that. Um, I've heard from a lot of people, and I know that in the information sessions and Q&A sessions, that was a primary concern. Mm-hmm. So how is AAPR working with um the departments to make sure that that quality is maintained? I mean, I, I think we're working pretty well. Uh, I always like to remind people that over half of the committee is composed of faculty. The the people administering Oberlin's cause, you know, every day are, are really the folks coming up with the bulk of the planning here. And so I always remind people that faculty aren't lost, that they want to, like, lost on the fact that they want to do their jobs well mm-hmm. and they want to be supported by their departments. These aren't sort of outside spectators trying to, to rein down decisions on this community. These are actively engaged folks trying to um, create a better circumstance for both this institution and for their professional work. Um, And, you know, to get into specifics, I think the academic reorganization uh, part of AAPR's uh, preliminary recommendations or areas of recommendation, rather, uh, really highlight our faculty's commitment to really taking professional development one step further and saying that, okay, we have something now and it's worked for us, but where is education going? Where are our jobs going? Where is higher education going? And how can we facilitate a structure that allows us to adapt to these moving concerns and to adapt to these new realities of higher education? Really just even instruction. I mean, faculty across the board stated that they wanted more uh, collaboration with their colleagues mm-hmm. uh, in, in the data we have. And I think the academic reorganization piece sort of um, including faculty in these larger divisions will give people that flexibility uh, to have that cutting edge research, like that cutting edge research in emerging fields. Yeah, and that also, I mean, on a practical level, decreases administrative bloat, right? Because I think students talk about a lot the fact that, or I've heard students talk about the fact that it seems like a lot of the cuts are going towards faculty and not administrators, but that is a direct impact on faculty jobs as far as administrative assistance go, isn't it? Right, and I think more so just like faculty workload. So yeah. under our, our current system, uh, every department has a chair that has a certain set of responsibilities and administrative work that not everyone wants to do, and not everyone knows how to do it well. And faculty will be the first to talk about um, how some of those uh, obligations are superfluous or extraneous outside of the realm of their work. And so uh, I think this is an opportunity to cut back on that, but to also to also really, I mean, really hone in on what are our necessary administrative functions. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people do talk about, you know, administrative bloat and specifically, you know, the rise of the dean. Mm-hmm. I, I think what most people are often referring to is like the rise of senior administrators, uh, of which, I don't know, we... I should know this off the top of my head. I think we may have 10, mm-hmm. maybe a few more, maybe a few less. That's 10 people out of a um, out of a, an institution that employs, you know, around 1,100 people. Yeah. So, you know, I, I always sort of cut them out because I think they're, they're very extraneous examples. And I think people's problems with that uh, really 
really center around essentially compensation and that they are the most highly compensated people around here. But they also, you know, I, I always like to talk about the fact that we could just cut all their salaries and that wouldn't take us out of, like, we could pay them zero dollars. That wouldn't get us out of a, a, a deficit, per se. So, overall, on a broader scale, what has been the response to the committee's findings so far and how do you think that the rollout and sort of um, public conversations have gone so far? Yeah, I think we've had a, a pretty Oberlin response. People are <laughs> are seemingly rather engaged. Uh, people want to know more, which I think is good, uh, because it challenges us to really, to really find ways that are substantive and meaningful to support our ideas. And so um, <coughs> I think the community response has been robust and it's been uh, solicitous, but it's been, I often think, you know, really fair and kind and reflective of the sort of magnitude of what we're doing. I, I think people now more than ever understand that like what we're doing is serious and that it will have serious like serious effects. And I I think the sort of flexibility there is that we don't know what those effects are yet because we don't know what we're doing. Uh but now's the time for people to get in gear and help us out. Yeah. As as far as the seriousness <clears throat> sort of thing, it is a very serious I mean, for those who may not have attended the the presentations, the budgetary implications of the next decade are huge. Um, I have in my notes that that the five-year deficit is roughly $52 million if we were to do nothing, um, which is about a third of our operating budget for the entire year. Say it louder for the people in the back. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so just to make sure everybody heard, um, $52 million five years from now, which is a third of our annual operating budget. So that's, I mean... That's how did we get into this situation? Like, because that's that's a right. lot more than it ever should be able to get to. Correct. Um, so, how did we get here? I think a lot of people would answer this question a lot of ways, uh, and I think what I'm going to try to refrain from doing is really giving a lot of personal attribution because, I mean, at the end of the day, if we're going to be serious, this is a board problem. Right. Uh, the board has a fiduciary responsibility to Stuart Oberlin, uh, and so our financial welfare, or lack thereof, however you see it, uh, is a reflection of, of their uh, governance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think beyond that, we are not independent of, of the climate of higher education sure, that we keep talking about. Um, and, and that's not to, to keep ringing a bell, but it's more so the sense that, you know, in the early, particularly in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, we had a rise in the, uh, pop- like the student body of Oberlin, our, our student population. Uh, and with that came um, a a need for more resources for a lot of different things, mm-hmm. more people to do things for students, more uh, offices to um, to support students. The regulatory environment for college or for higher education has gotten uh, much more complex. That and that complexity requires people and, and labor to, uh, to to keep us in compliance. I mean, there are so many different things, but the reality is that our uh, total student enrollment began to rise. Our um, 
our total employment or our total employee groups began to rise. And at one point, the number of students who uh, began to choose Oberlin plateaued, and uh, the number of, of folks we employ here did not. Uh, and if you could picture that on a graph, yeah. you'd see the, the, the Pac-Man mouth <laughs> that represents the deficit. Yeah. And Oh, go ahead, sir. Um, so I think another thing that I've heard people use as sort of an explanation of why we're in this deficit is that Oberlin tends to send a lot of alumni into very creative fields, um, service fields, nonprofit fields that don't make a lot of money. Um, and I think that's something that Oberlin's very proud of. But I was wondering, um, there, we have another statistic here that Oberlin students secure career-related jobs at half the rate of our peer institutions. So why is that, and, and how does that fit in with um, this budget crisis, if it does? Um, so I, I, I would hate, I don't want to draw them as being too analogous, <coughs> but I, I, I think where it sort of fits into the larger picture is we do have a lot of alumni, a lot of graduates who go on to do good things for the world, uh, which all, all the time are, or which aren't all the time the most lucrative positions, and I think um, we, like, we aren't, we aren't Amherst, we're not, uh, we're not Williams, like, we don't have, we, we have some, we have some OBs on Wall Street, but we're just not, we just don't have alums that do the same things in the same ways that are able to contribute to the institution in in that degree, Um, and so I think that is a, a notable, uh, feature of our existence, uh, but a, a challenging one at times, so particularly in this situation. Beyond that, though, I think sort of thinking about the, you know, Oberlin students graduating, I'm sorry, attaining jobs at, at half the rate at graduation of other students, I don't know why that is, and that's something... You know, I've tried to put my finger on. I think part of the problem is that we do not have a robust or robust career development program here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we are sort of at the initiation of a an institutional shift towards understanding that you can be an OB, you can be that passionate and, and justice oriented and and righteous like righteous young person and still have a job. Yeah. And still work in, you know, even a corporate environment. And you take, like, and we can take those values with us. I mean, I always say, like, what if there were more OBs on Wall Street? Or um, an alum once said to me, what if there was a little bit more tap-in square on Wall Street? And um, I, I wonder if, if students would be, would be, I just wonder how people would be open to that and those ideas, but I don't know. I would say, I mean, as a graduating senior myself who does not currently have a job offer on the table, um, I mean, I'm a little bit of a different case because I want to go into a creative field that for which there is no like job board. There's no job board for the, the, the music recording business. Like it just doesn't exist. Um, but I think that one thing that I've observed a lot in my peers is almost a a little bit of a panic and a little bit of a lack of awareness in what's out there. I think one thing that that certainly in my experiences, both with the Career Center, but also Oberlin faculty and other students, I, I just haven't found a lot of people who will say, oh, well, if you're interested in this, that, and the other thing, here are a hundred companies that you could work for 
and they all have job postings. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go on the website of any company, and they right. have they have job postings there. And the economy, I mean, knock on wood for now, is doing pretty well. Like there are jobs, they exist, but. I think there's a little bit of like almost hesitation. Like if I don't, I, I don't know exactly what I want to do, so I can't apply for jobs because I don't know. Right, and I, I think part of what we're hoping comes from uh, AAPR and specifically our recommendations around a most or a more robust uh, career development program is that sort of faculty engagement mm-hmm. uh, because you know faculty are on the front lines engaging with students every day. Um, oftentimes, people send them opportunities and, and send them. Uh, potential jobs for students and potential research opportunities and we want I, I think we want faculty members to feel empowered to share those and to to feel empowered over uh, really embracing that sort of co-curricular piece of education because it's yeah. essential I mean I don't know about you but this degree was not free and yeah. I I just can't imagine living a life where I, I would make such a, a large investment in myself and not have expectations for what comes out on the other side. Yeah. And I think specifically with you know the rising collegiate population of uh, black and brown students from non-traditional or from areas in uh, in the Southwest and in the West that haven't you know been the traditional foundations of higher education or foundations of those student bodies, uh, they care about that stuff too. Yeah. Uh, people, the job market is good, but it is not promised. Yeah. Uh, and, and we, I don't know, I think they're, I don't know, I've always, and, and this is sort of me moving beyond my APR hat, but I've, I've just always found a, a little bit of, of privilege in not caring about like postgraduate opportunities oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and a, a blatant sort of um, Expression of security and being unemployed that I've just never been able to enjoy. Yeah, I I, I don't enjoy that either. Um, Sarah, did you have something you wanted to? Yeah, so I think one of the other things that AAPR is working on to sort of bridge that gap between career and Oberlin is uh, the addition of concentrations in public health and mm-hmm. in business. Um, and in the Q and A sessions, there was a lot of resistance to that idea, especially of the business concentration. Um, so, why do you think there is so much resistance to that at Oberlin, and what is the hope of adding that um, to our institution? Right, well, I think part of it is a, a sort of very firm grip by some of what is Oberlin culture and what it means to be an OB, uh, which is actually a strikingly conservative mindset for such a progressive institution. Uh, but I think it's it's a, and many times it's, it's very honest and it's a desire to protect what people feel are the best parts of Oberlin. And to some, those are uh, sort of our, our anti-capitalist student body culture right. at times right. or uh, the sort of ra- the, the radicalness by which we preach um, and to some bis- like I, I think some people have this narrow um, conceptualization of business majors of, of like white boys in suits at Wharton uh, <laughs> who don't care about social justice or anything good and only want to make money and like and, and kill the world and I, I I I don't think that's what that is um, first and foremost anybody going to Wharton who has their mindset on going to Wharton I can almost guarantee isn't going to come here. Yeah. Um, to do Overland's business concentration. But who could come here is, you know, that that really awesome politics major 
uh, or cast major who wants to start a a business to support their community. Like these are things that people can do to do good things. Um, you know, OBs go out and they start Etsy. They start cool things. We do cool things, uh, and so. And also an, an interesting part about the specifically business concentration that AAPR is recommending is that, you know, we're not just saying take three accounting courses and two accounting courses and you're done. We're trying to, to really bridge like philosophy and politics in there and show, you know, use the versatility uh, of an interdisciplinary concentration to bring out what are the best parts of an education and business that we will want people to have. Uh, and I think another thing that people might just have to to sort of come to grips with is that it's a revenue driver. We ask students what they wanted. We ask prospective students um, what they wanted to study when they got here. And lots of, <coughs> pardon me, lots of people said business. Um, and so I think we're responding to that because at the end of the day, I mean, we talked about the structural deficit earlier. We need more revenue. Yeah. And this is almost nearly cost-neutral option. I just really don't understand the resistance to it because I think it can do nothing but enhance the the offerings that we provide our students here and make us more multifaceted totally. uh, and more, you know, rooted in the liberal arts types of students. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, as a as an openly um, or at least previously openly anti-business major person, I think for me there is a, a point of frustration which is that why don't students think that they can do business outside of having a business concentration or you know why can't why couldn't i as a chemistry major apply for jobs at a consulting firm of course i could and and i i think it's almost sort of a like shouting into the void type of situation mm-hmm. where you could say that about anything yeah well well yeah but but where i i feel like there are so many ways that being an econ major a cast major or whatever major at oberlin can feed into your life afterwards and i i almost think it stems from a a frustration of how we sort of box each other in 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 a certain way absolutely like you know oh you're you're a biology major okay you're going to do pre-med or you're going to do whatever you know like i don't i wish that i wish that it, it weren't like that which is ironic, maybe not irony, but interesting to me because, you know, in admissions, we always talk about the versatility of a liberal arts degree and how yeah. you, know, you don't have to have a linear path uh, post-graduation that, you know, one would just automatically find synonymous with the, the title of your major. Uh, and I do think we restrict ourselves in that way because, you know, under that logic, you could ask, well, you know, why be a politics major when I could just run for office? Right. So like that's, that's not necessarily what it's about. Yeah. Yeah, I think also it's interesting that there's this sort of gap in career or education to career and that um, AAPR is trying to bridge that through adding a concentration versus um, changes in career developments in which Daniel talked about that like a lot of people I think feel like there's not sufficient support through career development center. So is there are there changes coming to that as well? Oh, absolutely. I think the majority of that recommendation talked about 
needing to bring our career development center uh, in line, both staffing-wise and resource-wise, uh, with you know the Sweet 16 and, and some of our peer institutions uh, in the Ohio Five. So that's definitely something we're considering. I'd be the first one to say that the CDC needs some work. Um, that's not to say that the folks who uh, are helping students every day with resumes and in career preparation um, are at fault. I just really right. think it we, it represents a a non-engagement, a lack of serious engagement of the institution uh, with postgraduate preparation, uh, of which we are now are now sort of reaping the effects of. Yeah. Do you have off the top of your head sort of what the staffing or funding of the Career Center of one of our peer institutions might be relative to ours? Okay, so n- nobody hold me beholden <laughs> to these numbers. It's approximate. Uh, if I remember correctly... I believe the ideal situation for us would be to have one director and like five or six sort of associates. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think part of where we might also draw fault is um, in the idea that by just hiring more people to work at the center, it will be better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, I mean, I I would hope that more support uh, produce more results, but it's also the idea that we need our Career Development Center to work closely with our alumni engagement office. What are the opportunities for uh, postgraduate um, and and career-based work within our own community, or bringing it even more proximate, what are the opportunities to engage with people who are doing the jobs every day? What, you know, what's keeping someone from someone who's interested in potentially working in HR uh, from working as an extern for Joe Vitale um, or anyone else. And I think that's another area where um, we might be able to to really hone in on some unique opportunities just by using things we already have. Hmm. Um, to sort of switch directions a little bit, I think something else we should touch on is OSCA um, because that was one of the most contentious and sort of most disputed um, things that AAPR brought up uh, in the Q&A sessions. That was one of the most frequently asked uh, questions were about that. Um, So first of all, could you you just talk a little bit about what the changes would be to OSCA under the committee's review? So I I think this is what we're trying to figure out right now. Um, I think for better or worse, this is one of our most unclear uh, sort of areas of recommendation. I'll tell you why. On our end, all we can sort of understand is the college's side. OSCA is an independent organization. Uh, they run independently. We, to this date, have not had access to their finances. Um, and so in trying to understand their financial impact on us, we, we've come up with a set of variables that you know arrive at around $1.9 million, essentially, uh, equating lost revenue and um, and market-based rent and a couple other figures. And I think people have been really interested in, in toying around with that number, which is fine. Um, I think... I think this will be interesting because I don't know what you know, this recommendation will bring. Um, I think folks who think that the college, quote, is just trying to kill Asuka, I think that idea is absurd, Um, particularly 
you know, with the fact that, like, all the students in AAPR on ASCA, like, the board member who was on, who's currently on AAPR and then asking that always talks about ASCA. Um, nobody in this room wants to kill ASCA. I can't say that <laughs> enough times. I just can't say it enough times. Um, but we do want to recognize that there is a relationship between ASCA that has gone uncritically examined for a long time and that we need to, to really sort of uh, hone in on that and, and bring that further. So, um, you know, talking about this deficit, and I, I, I keep trying to bring this back um, to the bigger picture because I think it, it helps people understand. One of the, the sort of contentions folks would have or folks have had with our Oscar recommendation is the idea of lost revenue and saying, and we shouldn't even consider lost revenue because, you know, that student's choosing just not to engage with the Oberlin's meal plan. Um, <coughs> that is true. But the reality of a fiscal deficit is that we have expenses that outpace our revenue. So that means we can do one of two things. We can either increase our revenue or decrease our expenses. Uh, and, you know, a smart person would do both. President Ambar mm -hmm. always says you can't cut your way to prosperity. Um, but there are only so many ways to increase our revenue when 83% of our annual revenue comes from student fees. So when we talk about increasing revenue, uh, we can't just... We can't just have more students. We can't just enroll more students because there's nowhere for them to sleep. And so I think the the Oscar question uh, has given us some real interesting insight on on what that could look like and mm -hmm. in, in what having um, just what maintaining the different levels of involvement between Oscar housing and dining and and CDS <coughs> and college based programming is. And so I I think the unsatisfying answer is I don't know what that looked like. We had a meeting today. Still don't know what that looks like. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if we'll know what that looks like this week, but it's a really interesting opportunity for Asuka. You know, I think one thing that students, you know, really often like to take pride in is the fact that Asuka is an independent organization. Well, now it's time for everybody to put on their 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 big hats and our thinking caps, as I call, and to really step into these leadership positions, like. I don't know, I, I keep saying this, somebody has to be responsible for Oscar's welfare. Like, somebody has to come to the table with us and say, and understand that the relationship that the college is in is not ideal, and that we want to to maintain the important educational pieces of this program, while also making sure that Oberlin College is set in a, a financially sustainable path. The reality is that Oscar cannot exist without Oberlin College. And if Oberlin College lets itself fall into a pit and reach a $52 million deficit in five years, then eventually Oscar will have nothing to support. And we'll, I mean, that's a, a difficult truth, but it's a real one. And so it's like, what are we trying to protect and why and how do we go about doing that? I do, I do want to, I mean, I'm an Oscar member. I do want to kind of push back on it because I think if there were any area of APR that I were uncomfortable with. It's probably this one. Mm -hmm. um, I have to say, just sort of as a sidetrack, I was really... I've been one of the foremost doubters on this show of AAPR since the whole thing was announced. No. I railed against <laughs> you guys forever. And I, and really? I, I, yes, I was. And I was really convinced by the presentation. I mean, I, I, I it's it's very clear and obvious that you guys did so much work and you did it in the right way and you did it for the right reasons but I feel a little bit I have some misgivings about the Oscar situation because 
at least based on my understanding of how the calculation was done, based on if everyone who's currently in Asuka were paying CDS rates to CDS, that feels a little bit disingenuous to me. Do I, I mean... Right, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and one thing that, you know, Asuka's leadership has been pretty uh, firm in communicating is that op- Asuka operates at cost <coughs> um, based off of, off of their tax status. But Oberlin College doesn't. Right. And so what Asuka may charge as an independent organization for people to clean their spaces who don't have union contracts or other labor agreements that right. we have could probably do that for much cheaper. Right. But the college the college is just not set in that way. And so uh, I do understand like I I do understand people's frustration both with Oscar I mean some people just you know, don't think Oscar should be even in these considerations. And to that, I've just responded that we've considered everything, even, you know, decreasing financial aid, which mm-hmm. we decided was not an option. Yeah. Uh, but what people need to understand in this process is that values are not free mm. and values cost money. And oftentimes we assert our values with our dollars. Right. And this is a conversation that we're going to have now is what values can we afford and what can't we? But I mean, to that point, right, like the board or sorry, not the board, the the steering committee Mm -hmm. through multiple members has said, we don't want to get rid of Asuka. Right. Well, if you don't want to get rid of Asuka, there has to be a dollar value that we say, okay, we value this. Mm -hmm. We're going to support it. And I think part of the reason that I have trouble, you know, just a reminder to this date, I've not seen any of Asuka's finances. I totally understand that. Totally understand. But. Part of my my issue is if you if you take your if you if you generate that figure, it doesn't seem to take into account if you could and maybe you couldn't and that's just part of the problem because obviously I think I think it I think it makes sense that Oscar's part of this. There can be no argument that an organization that feeds twenty percent of Oberlin students should just be ignored. That's crazy. But if you make a calculation based on in effect if everyone in Oscar paid CDS rates to CDS you're not taking into consideration what added costs would there be if CDS suddenly had to feed all these extra students well, we, we have, have taken you that have. into cost and it, it's not that much because the reality is that labor is expensive everyone always talks about oh the meal plans are so expensive right. yes and nobody is saying that it costs like ten dollars for a tomato like the, the food cost is the food cost that's mm-hmm. standard what is not as standard is the price we pay in labor right and the reality is that when students withdraw this is this is when we start talking about economies of scale right yeah when students start withdrawing uh, from that dining program it it doesn't necessarily like it it when students withdraw from the dining program, it removes them from paying into the labor pool without making serious reductions in how like much labor has to like mm. has to come with preparing so, these meals. So, in your mind, the 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 added in this hypothetical scenario where we add a bunch of students to CDS, mm-hmm. the labor cost doesn't grow as well, a result, I, I, or not it grows marginally. Yeah, I, I won't say it doesn't grow. I, I think everybody would look at me like I was silly if right. I said that because I'll be like, it 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 will grow relatively, but I I think it's marginal relative to 
and let's say the revenue gain we would have if every student just participated in CDS. Mm. And the same is the same is true of like cost of purchasing food and facilities and and whatnot. Pretty much, I mean, part of the reason, um, I mean, part of the reason why we had to close down a dining hall was because our our labor expenses are pretty sizable, mm. and um, and like we we just didn't have students meeting demand in those places. Um, like our our some of our dining halls were operating like operating like twenty to thirty percent under capacity. Mm. That's not an effective use of the resources. It's certainly not environmentally sustainable, yeah. uh, and it's just not good institutional efficacy. And I, I mean, I think dining is an interesting piece because I think folks like to parse apart the dining and housing versus tuition, which makes a lot of sense. But I've always been a proponent of sort of understanding it as a comprehensive fee, because it all feeds our operating budget. Like, people, some folks end up being surprised when they find out that the college makes a profit off of dining. Well, yeah, so we can keep the lights on. Um, Again, Oberlin College does not operate at cost, because as we know now, our costs are exceeding our revenue. Certainly. Certainly. So something else that um, the committee brought up in regards to OSCA was the fact that um, OSCA, despite what a lot of people, I think, perceive it as, is um, wider and more affluent than the rest of the college. And so, therefore, subsidizing OSCA doesn't benefit students who have food insecurity issues. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was wondering if you could speak to that argument a little bit, because I think that doesn't really take into consideration that... Uh, a lot of co-ops and a lot of OSCA caters to specific dietary needs or offers safe spaces for people. Um, so that was one of the the parts of this argument that I found most interesting, and I was wondering if you could yeah. offer your opinion. Yeah, so I, I'm probably the person who, uh, who said that a bunch of times <coughs> because I, I think it's important around an equity issue, uh, which has been sort of the, the framework of equity believe it or not, has been something that this committee has really considered, particularly, like, even around compensation. We've been saying that, you know, like, our, our compensation should be equitable across the institution in many ways. So, sort of taking the, the equity perspective, it's interesting because, I mean, the data the data just shows that OSCA is wider and richer than the portion of students that aren't in OSCA. So we talk about we talked earlier about you know what happens when students withdraw from the the main college dining programs is that many of those costs are then defrayed on the students who then do participate in in college dining and so when you have that phenomenon and it's occurring with a group that is or you have a group that is less affluent and more diverse subsidizing a population. Um, from which the the more diverse and less wealthy population does not benefit from the the educational or just the the programmatic um, operations of Oscar. I think that that's relatively unfair, and it's I think it's dishonest to portray Oscar as an institution that uh, explicitly like supports the welfare of low income like of low income students without having a real engagement with that fact and saying what does that mean for this institution um, I think you know in many ways colleges operate as you know little mini 
microcosms of wealth redistribution. That's sort of how our discount rate works. People who can afford to pay more do, uh, and we subsidize the costs for those who can't. Um, and that being said, it, it brings us to the realization that students with the highest need at Oberlin, like students with the highest need, this is like this is just fact, participate in college dining programs because it's paid for, because we meet 100% of demonstrated need. And so, like, people may not necessarily think the food at CDS is the greatest. I personally don't think it's the greatest. No, yeah. <laughs> But the reality is that, is that like, for for people whom which food insecurity may have been real before going to Oberlin, or for whom it would be real had they not had the option to eat as much as they need based off of this meal plan, like students would be in a bad place. Like that would that would not be just that would not be um, that would not be the institution really taking it. It's, priority or its obligation to provide welfare for students seriously and I get that people have so many issues with the dining plans like I do too I think there are so many things to be worked with with that I just don't think that's one of them I don't think the pricing is the issue can I can I ask about the flip side of this conversation which is I'd be offended if you didn't I think it's very I think it's very clear that from a financial perspective if only that that you need to have people in college dining. I think that's clear. But we haven't talked a lot about, and and as far as what I remember from the presentations, there wasn't a lot about Bon Appetit specifically as an organization mentioned. Is that off? Is is that sort of out of bounds contractually? What's the situation there? So I'll I'll be honest. That is certainly a question for Meredith Raimondo, hmm. to which she would have a much more complete answer. Okay. <coughs> Um, and I think I'll be even more honest in saying that I don't know. Um, I don't think it's necessarily out of the bounds of AAPR to consider as part of its uh, solicitation of facts and evidence and, and pieces of data points right. for this process. Um, I will say, though, that... Actually, I won't say, because I, I'm just not super aware. My... General understanding is that the majority, like the overwhelming majority of colleges, have dining services mm-hmm. um, for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, the main two being, the main three being compliance, liability, and financial viability, mm. uh, all of which are pretty serious. Yes, um, very serious business. Yeah, and so the answer is I don't know, and I think those are conversations worth having. I just haven't had them yet. Fair enough. So, moving forward, I feel like one of the frustrations of everyone, which I'm sure the committee is facing as well, is that these recommendations are pretty vague at this point, um, and I think everyone is wondering when we will get more details and what the timeline looks like moving forward. Right. Well, I, I think we'd have a pretty anti-Oberlin process if we just came out the bat with, like, this is what we're doing, ha-ha. Um... I don't think that's what we wanted to do, and I don't think that's anything that this. Can you imagine how that would have gone over? <laughs> yeah, I don't well. think. Yeah, I don't think that's something this community is willing to accept. And so, uh, I think people should take a little solace in the ambiguity, like the ambiguity of our recommendations, because it means that we really are trying to consult. I'm, I, I think the ideas of areas of recommendation is that we have you know, big questions about various parts of how the college operates and 
lots of what ifs. Like, what if we did this that way? Or what if we did this this way? And now we're in the period of time where, you know, we get to ask the general faculty council, what if we did this? What would mm-hmm. the process of governance look like around that? Uh, and we can talk to student senate and, and people in open APR forums to understand their reactions and to know what are their concerns with us having a business concentration so that we can mitigate those or we can respond to them in healthy ways. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I can get that it can be frustrating. Um, but we started this process with nothing. Yeah. We started yeah. this process with no ideas, yeah. no recommendations. All of these have been really rooted from the ground up in our work. And, um, you know, you, you, you just got to water the tree and let it grow. And we're, we're trying to, we got the seeds planted, but we're trying to let our community really pour in mm-hmm. uh, and, and see what fruits we can get from that. I, I want to um, <coughs> ask another question about process. <clears throat> Which is, um, <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, a little birdie told me that sort of partway through this process in the fall, Steven Strategy, which was the consulting firm that was hired to sort of assist in this process, mm-hmm. made their sort of big pitch mm-hmm. and it didn't really go very well. And we started from scratch in effect. Are you able to talk about that at all? Um, So there, there's nothing like like it's not like a privacy or like a confidentiality concern that's like mm-hmm. barring me from talking about. It. I'm really just trying to think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I don't know what the the decisions behind essentially where to engage Stephen's strategy uh, and, and where not to really came from. I can say that I personally. I can't remember anything outside of the. <coughs> I'll say this: the I, I will say, to my understanding and to my knowledge, the greatest parts of the uh, Stephen strategy uh, work with the steering committee was the survey mm. that went out to all students that we used as sort of our data collection around mission centeredness, quality, uh, etc., and also the um, like revenue center model that the financial viability committee uh, made, which essentially sort of laid out the institution's finances um, in, in a variety of ways, understanding direct expenses, indirect expenses, uh, based on like departmental levels in, in areas of operations. Uh, and it was really robust. I don't even know if we used it that much. Sometimes yeah. that's one of the that, things. That was that, the impression that I got, is that it sort of didn't really factor in in a big yeah, way. Yeah, I, I think that's one of... I work kind of hard on that, so... Um, I think that was one of my... I, I think it was good to have that, because it reminded us where we are, mm. even if we didn't want to let that dictate you know, what we were going to do. And everybody, you know, a lot of folks are always asking for more data, to which I'm, like, very, very... Like, I'm, I'm very in support of... I was even in support of releasing the RCM. Mm. Um, because I, I think this community... <coughs> I think this community can handle knowledge, but sometimes the stuff isn't that pretty. Yeah. Um, and I think that we ultimately found that, you know using the RCM or sort of the Stevens strategy model of, of sort of cutting off the dead weight or the, the fat was not what this institution needed, which is why uh, APR like isn't recommending any 
you know, specific right. adjustments to any departments. Right. We certainly have all that data. Right. Um, and we can certainly tell you who makes money and who doesn't. Mm. But that's not central to our educational mission. Right. Uh, and that's not, it's just not core to, to what we want this process to be. And so, uh, along with financial aid, I think that's one of the things we're proud of, of not really uh, moving. On the topic of uh, not cutting any departments, I think <coughs> something that is sort of a hot topic on campus right now is the Arabic department and uh, the changes that are coming to it in the future. And how does that fit into AAPR? And, and what does the committee have to do with that? Is that separate? Um, and why are there changes to that specific department, despite what the report says? Yeah, this, this is another area where I'm, I'm slightly unfamiliar. Um, I, I think... My understanding of the situation with the Arabic department is that it's really a result of like regular um, budgetary processes that happen every year, uh, which are happening sort of concurrently and often with sort of AAPR's goal of financial stability and viability in mind, but they're not the, like they're not the same thing. And so, you know, the status of the Arabic department outside of, you know, Q&As and people um, expressing their opinion on its... Uh, on its future, we didn't really, I mean, that never hit our desk um, and sort of would be beyond the bounds of what we're trying to do. Um, I think what AAPR has really been good at is really like using our collective mindset as a, an institutionalist tool and to really say that like we are here to make sure that Oberlin like college celebrates its 200th anniversary in 2033. Yeah. Like we are here to make sure that what we do now, like students will enjoy forever. And we understand that the practices like we were doing before then won't get us there. So, you know, I didn't even talk about this earlier, but you asked about, you know, how do we get in this deficit? Um, I read a great article in like US News and World Report the other day that compared it to like a, a family living paycheck by like paycheck. Mm -hmm. um, and that the institution was essentially you know, a different institution, but, you know, comparably to us, you know, we have been using, we've been so reliant on student tuition dollars as, like, our paycheck, and we've been living paycheck to paycheck, and then, you know, we lose a few students, and it creates a deficit because our paycheck is smaller, but our bills haven't gone down, uh, and then to cover that out, we go into, you know, the endowment and make this extraordinary withdrawal, which a lot of people sort of depict as a savings account or as a checking account. It's not. Like, most of our assets are not liquid in that way. That's your retirement right there. Yeah, you're that's your... That. Yeah, that's your... That's your proof to the world that you're doing something and that, like, you are financially stable yeah. and that you should be given loans and credit. Like, that's a lot. It's not just that we are in a, a poor situation uh, and need to be fixed. So I say that to say that we have we have really been just forward thinking in the institution and not, you know, I think we would get lost in our work if we started, you know, really reducing our work to the, I don't want to say reducing our work, but if we started shifting our work to, you know, the vitality or the, the longevity of specific departments or units, we would just get into the, the sort of coral that I think we wanted to avoid from the very start of this process. Yeah. Um, related to that, I was surprised actually that there wasn't even really a mention in the, the presentations of growing the endowment because I think it's a little bit 
maybe backwards to say, oh, well, we've been living paycheck to paycheck for so long, relying only on student tuition, and now everything that we're doing is related to student tuition, which is just trying to grow our paycheck, but not really addressing the underlying problem. Um, and I know that President Ambar has what said... Would you, what would you reference the underlying problem as being? Well, I, okay, maybe that was a, a questionable turn of phrase, but... No, but, I, I just wanted to know. I think, I think if if the underlying problem is our is our tuition dependence, doing things that grow tuition revenue or decrease expenses in some cases don't necessarily quite get at that fundamental like defining characteristic, you know. And when you do, every institution in higher ed will be knocking on your door trying to figure out how we make this financial <laughs> model work without doing that. I think you're absolutely right. I'm sorry, I didn't understand you at first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I really get what you're saying. And I think this is where when we start talking about, you know, Oberlin's relationship and context in the greater world of higher education and, you know, the, the struggles we're having now being a product or uh, in a product of that system, I think this is what we're talking about. Um, we have been relying on this very tuition dollar-centered model, uh, and now people are choosing to spend their money elsewhere. A lot of students are choosing to invest in a, a state school system with an honors college or um, to, to go into uh, a, a less expensive experience. They're just saying that, you know, this isn't where they want to spend their money. <coughs> Or they just don't have it. Yeah. And that can be the... I mean, that's... That's the end of that discussion. Yeah, and that's the end of that discussion. So, um, I think you're right. The question should be, how do we move away from that model? But we certainly won't get there if we have to make an extraordinary withdrawal from our endowment every sure. year. Um, at which, you know, at one point, our extraordinary withdrawals were tapping into 8% of the endowment. That's that's outrageous. Yeah. And we're just doing that to keep the lights on. We're not even getting, we're not getting better because of it. Mm -hmm. We're not, you know, building, you know, lots of new things with these extraordinary withdrawals. We're literally just, we're essentially paying people to work and keeping the lights on. Right. So the, is the endowment question just an, a question sort of for a little bit farther down the road when we're in a better state? Yeah, I think it's, it's certainly a question for someone with a little more investment experience than me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, the endowment has, the endowment is not, absent of the stock market, right? And so, I believe it was last year the endowment performed particularly well. Um, but that was because we had a volatile start, like stock market under Trump, so everybody saw great returns. And then, yeah. you know, we're not getting that right now. So, <clears throat> I think endowments are a great question, uh, to which we can't really control, but we can certainly control how much of it we spend. Right. So we're coming to the end of our hour. Um, one last question, which I think is on everyone's mind. How can students voice their opinion going forward in this process? I think students should really just, one, read your email, please. Like, <laughs> it's the only way that we can communicate with everyone. If people don't read their emails, then like, we just can't get to you as well as we could um, in, in another circumstance. I think beyond that, though, just really taking advantage of all the listening sessions and um, the opportunities for engagement that are being publicized. I'll be honest, I can't remember every one that they are, um, but there have been like so many listening sessions. Uh, many of them have been, I don't know if you go on the AAPR date, they'll show you all the, or the website, they'll show you all the ones we've had to date. 
I get a new calendar invitation every yeah. day because, you know, students or student groups specifically have asked to meet with us uh, to share their concerns. And we, you know, we're, we're trying to meet that need. So if you have any questions, I really say just to reach out to the AAPR email with any concerns because Deborah sends us all of those. And Is we that AAPR them. at overland.edu? I hope so. All right. Let's hope so. Well, Cam, thank you very much thank for you. joining us. Always a blast. Yeah. Thank Sarah, you. thanks to you, too. Um, you've been listening to the weekly a production of WOBC. The show is created uh, by me and Johan Cavert. This episode was produced by Sarah Dalglish and me. Um, as always, you can find our show on Apple Podcasts and Google Play by searching the weekly Oberlin. And you can now listen on the web at www.anchor.fm forward slash the dash weekly. Thanks for listening. FM, Overland College and Community Radio. Thanks to the weekly um, right before me. Um, this is One Woman Radio. I'm your host, Bridget Conway. Got a lot on the docket for us tonight. Um, this is I Want to Be Your Lover by Pan Ron um, off of Dengue Fever, which is a comp of like found 60s pop from uh, like Thailand. Um, and it is very good. I got really into these, like, comps uh, a couple years ago, and they're really fun to listen to. They have some fun covers of stuff, too, um, but, you know. Uh, thanks so much for listening. This is WBC.